DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. We start another week off here at uh, GPB Radio on 14th Street in Midtown Atlanta. We've got a special theme show. Uh, if you heard our uh, opening uh, before the NPR newscast, we're going to be talking about gentrification and particularly as it relates to three of the big cities in uh, Georgia, Atlanta, Macon, and Savannah. We have people with us today who can talk about all three of those cities, and more importantly, just about what is gentrification, why is it so controversial, what's good, what's bad. We'll get into all that as the show goes on. First, though, let me welcome back Jim Galloway. It's Monday, so uh, you're here. You said, uh, by the way, before I ask you that important question, we always like to point out, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Very impressive. Still. Still. <laughs> Wednesdays and Sundays, your column appears, and you oversee the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Uh, you had a fair weekend, is what you I said a, to me. I pretty dis- it was It was rather hot. <laughs> yeah. Didn't spend a whole lot of time outside. I have to admit, I went to my first Braves game and at did you survive? Park. And did you survive? I thought it was really fun. I haven't watched a. I, you know, I'm a big. You know, I'm a big soccer fan. Anytime you can pick up a ball with your hands, it's the wrong sport, as far as I'm it, concerned. It, it, this is, it, baseball. Baseball is the only sport in which the team that holds the ball is on defense. Oh. This is why you're the lead writer, political writer at the AJC. Well, I had a great time. My son took me as a Father's Day president. We had a great time at the ballpark. So maybe I'll try that again sometime. All right. Enough of that. Let's get to our panel today. Uh, We should point out, by the way, that our intern, Ivan Lichtenstein, is uh, leaving us today. And his last present, after all the good work he's done, is that he produced this show on gentrification. We'd like to give our interns an opportunity to do that. And Ivan, we uh, appreciate the work you've done and uh, and all you've done to put this specific show together. So we're going to talk about all of that today. Uh, we're joined by Shanae Joseph, who is the executive director of the Historic District Development Corporation. Shanae, what I want each of you to do is just a very quick capsule. What does your organization do? What's your mission? So we're a nonprofit um, that was um, actually one of the oldest nonprofits in Atlanta, responsible for affordable housing, specifically in the old Fourth Ward and Martin Luther King Historic District area. Boy, Fourth Ward especially, mm-hmm. an area that has gone through tremendous, tremendous transitions. We'll look forward to hearing more about that when we talk about the, the Atlanta gentrification issues. Denise Grabowski is here. She joins us, drove up from Savannah to be with us, which was really lovely. You are a principal at Symbosity. Close. Symbiosity. Symbiosity. Yeah. Tell me what that means. So Symbiosity is an urban planning consulting firm based in downtown Savannah. And I have the opportunity to work with local governments, state, regional organizations throughout coastal Georgia and South Carolina on planning issues facing their communities. And you have been involved in in this master plan envisioning Savannah moving 30 years into well, the future, more than that? Right. So Savannah, as many of you know, was founded in 1733 by General James Edward Oglethorpe. So we are coming up on 300 years. And in the face of that 300-year um, anniversary celebration, celebration, the Savannah Development Renewal Authority developed a civic master plan that looks kind of where downtown is going for the next 15 years. And I was fortunate to be involved in that project and here to talk more about that today. Good. And uh, also, Ethiel Garlington is with us. He's the executive director of Historic Macon, which is also a nonprofit. And you drove up to be with us today, too. I did. This will be the only time I correct you today, but it's Ethiel. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Did, did That's I right. not say that right? No, Ethiel. It's, it's okay. I it's apologize. True. You told me three times how to say it before <laughs> the show started. Which, it's a tough one. Go ahead. So, so his, your organization. Yeah, Historic Macon is a nonprofit advocacy organization in Macon. We're relatively, um, you know, traditional with other preservation organizations. Our mission is to revitalize communities by preserving architecture and sharing history. I think where we're different, though, is that we are actually 
doing the revitalization of historic neighborhoods ourselves. So we're actually buying, fixing up, and selling historic houses and building new houses. Okay. Um, I want to start, let's start by talking about uh, the issues of housing in cities. Let's start with Atlanta, I think, uh, given that we're the capital city. I want to share with you all some uh, information that I think is really interesting to set the table for this conversation, some of which I never knew before. Galloway, you may have known some of this. I did not know that Atlanta was the first city in the United States to develop public housing, which it did in 1936. Interestingly, it was also the first to close down public housing completely. Yeah, that started with the Olympics, I believe. Uh, hmm. Is that right? Was that it? Was the Olympics where that that we we started closing down public housing projects? It is. Um, that was the catalyst to begin breaking down. And but the impetus behind it was the decentralized decentralization of poverty and giving people the right to be able to live wherever they want to live, regardless of their income. Which, of course, is really an interesting part of the conversation, that you talk about housing projects for uh, low-income individuals and families, and you're doing just that. You're concentrating everybody in small pockets, which was the case here for many years, right? That is correct. Atlanta is fifth among U.S. cities experiencing the most gentrification, with more than 46% of its census tracts currently gentrifying. Um, okay, that leads me to ask this question. What are we talking about when we're talking about gentrification? Let me start with you on that, Sinead. So I think that's you know also part of the, the conversation is what do we need? Um, a lot of people will say that gentrification is revitalization, um, but the, the, real, the total definition is revitalization that promotes displacement of existing residents. And so it's not a bad thing to have new buildings and to really move forward with economic development. But if it means that people who have fought on the front lines to keep neighborhood states safe and have community can no longer live or basically, um, I guess, benefit from the fruits of this revitalized area, then are we really doing a good thing? And that, to me, is a total definition in that they can no longer live in their neighborhood. Yeah, that's really interesting, Jim. For some people, if you're an, if you're a business person, chamber of commerce person, gentrification means improving the amenities, building new housing stock, building new businesses uh, that uh, bring in more income, uh, public income. Uh, if you're on the other end of that and you are a low-income family, it has to move out because you can't afford it anymore. It's the bad side. Right, right. It's it's the it's the old it, it, it's the. Uh, uh, old things that uh, I want to improve the neighborhood until I need to move, and then I need to stop. It's 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 a, it's a really interesting balanced dynamic. I usually look at it in political terms, because this is one of the reasons why why city of Atlanta, the internals of city of Atlanta politics are changing so quickly because of this this mass immigration of 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 in large part uh, white residents. Uh, and it's and so you've got the racial dynamic in this in this gentrification uh, uh, effort as well. Yeah, Ethel, why don't you weigh in on this? I mean, if it was up to me, we would just get rid of that word completely, just because it means different. It has different definitions to everyone, and so it gets tossed around as this sort of hot to pay, hot potato, and it's just it's got so much baggage that goes along with it. But I agree with Shanae that in terms of um, Gentrification kind of in the way that we define it in Macon, it is that idea of displacing residents. And so we do everything in our work to um, focus on neighborhoods with high vacancy rates, focus on neighborhoods that are blighted, um, you know, underutilized, and then work with the residents who are there to ensure that whatever work that we're doing um, ensures that they can stay in that neighborhood as long as they want to. And ideally, they benefit from the investments that we make in those communities. Denise? I tend to agree completely that the word is so polarizing, it can be difficult to have an open conversation because it can have the connotation of bringing investment into a neighborhood that probably needs it. But if that spectrum goes too far, that's when you run into the issues of displacement and the cultural shift that can happen within neighborhoods. And I think that cultural piece is such, that's what that authenticity with so many of these older neighborhoods gets lost, and then that neighborhood is no longer the neighborhood that it was before. So I think that cultural component is really important to to think about as well. So, um, Shanae, uh, when we go back to Atlanta for a minute here, median rents are up 
since the year 2000, like 28 percent in mm-hmm. the city of Atlanta. And we now rank third in the nation in terms of evictions. And all of this leads me to talk to you about just focusing on Atlanta, because we'll talk Macon and Savannah uh, also specifically. Um, talk to us about how uh, things like the Beltline are attracting higher income investments, better housing stock. Uh, and what, what are projects like that or the old Fourth Ward, which is something you're deeply involved in? The Beltway, uh, Beltline, of course, passes through the old Fourth mm-hmm. Ward. Tell me about how all of that, what are the dynamics of all of that as far as your organization sees it? Well, I guess as far as our organization sees it, um, we are very um, transparent in our contribution to that, um, not intentionally. HDC is about 40 years old. We actually um, started building um, and rehabbing the majority of the houses in Fourth Ward. So between Auburn and Irwin, we built about 150 houses. And when we started our whole process, it never occurred to us that we would create this hot spot. Hmm. And so houses that we built um, and sold for maybe $120,000 right now, maybe 15 years ago, one of them is on the market for almost 600000 Wow. Right? So it wasn't until halfway through that process that we realized we need to put some sort of restrictive covenants or something on there. In addition to that, we were also the developer and right now part owner of StudioPlex. StudioPlex is one of the first mixed-use projects in Atlanta. Um, and the purpose of StudioPlex was to be affordable housing for artists. Well, because of the financing and the way that we weren't able to really um, solidify tax credits and the right subsidy to make it affordable, when those credits burned off, we now are in a market rate situation where after 20 years, everything is skyrocketed and there's really no way to balance that out. And so we created this environment where we just wanted a great place to live. And I think that that's what has happened is that we didn't have the foresight to say that, hey, we also need to kind of regulate this a little bit to ensure that we don't have a situation where we're promoting gentrification. Exactly with the Beltline as well. I think the Beltline was a good idea as far as what it could have created. But the measures to ensure that the residents could stay there from an early stage didn't happen. And so what became attractive to people to stay in their communities was also attractive to developers with no parameters whatsoever to say that if you're going to develop here, this is what you must do. Uh, let me ask you, let's, let's talk a little bit about the players in, in, in all of this. Okay, obviously we have the residents and the homeowners or renters. Uh, whichever. We have the developers who are moving in and changing. The, the, the role of the government in this thing, in, in, in gentrification, kind of interests me because they have, uh, governments have an, an incentive to make best economic use of their property so they can get more tax revenue out of it so they can offer more services. And it, it's, it seems to me that they're, 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 they're just as much a player as this. I, I think the Beltline is a good example because it was promised. There, there was a promise of, of a certain percentage of low-income housing that has not happened. Yeah, and so I guess the first question about the government's role, absolutely. Um, I think that's purpose is to be a good steward of taxpayer dollars. Um, we know for a fact that the city of Atlanta is one of the larger land owners in the city. Um, and so leveraging their property for affordable housing and other community benefits should happen. The question is the accountability behind that. Um, Also, you know, federal subsidies are declining, and so not saying that the city should not use the resources that it has, but we all have to look at not one source is going to be able to solve this issue. And so it has to be the city of Atlanta working with community development corporations, providing the right type of incentive to developers to make sure that we have housing that fits all of our income ranges, not just a 30% or a 50%, but say that, hey, we can go all the way up to 120, down to 30. That way we are truly encompassing what a community is, neighborhoods that are made up of a bunch of different types of people who are able to live together. Yeah, why don't you all, I would love to have, Ethiel, you and Denise both ought to weigh in on this uh, whole notion of how you, Jim's right. I mean, if you're if you're the city of Macon, uh, if you're the city of Savannah, you want to maximize the potential for taxes on a given property, and, and that means uh, upgrades, improvements of all sorts. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the interesting things about Macon is that um, because of the size and because of um, 
And because the community is so interested and willing to try and pilot new ideas, I think that we have had the opportunities to experiment with different tools and different programs. And so right now we are really um, kind of investigating and, and considering our property taxes and how we can potentially freeze property taxes at values until someone sells their house down the road, which I know is happening in other communities and counties in Georgia. Um, and then replacing that income for our community with an OLOS and other local special option sales tax. So the OLOS is in addition to a SPLOST, and so that income could then help defray those property taxes. Okay, can I make sure I understand if that there's a fundamental difference between what's happening, say, in the old Fourth Ward and what you're dealing with in Make It? In the old Fourth Ward, we're talking about a housing boom. Everybody's desperate to get into a house in the old Fourth mm -hmm. Ward. Now, you talked about the way in which housing prices have just skyrocketed uh, in recent years. So you've got a problem that you have to deal with in terms of that, the mix of people in, those com in that community. In Macon, it's a different problem, isn't it? Right. And I think in a lot of ways, we are where the Fourth Ward was 40 years ago. And candidly, in a, in a lot of ways, I hope we are in that position. You know, I think we all as a community want to see the, the neighborhoods thrive and, and succeed. But I think to the, to the point of planning ahead, it's very challenging in a community like Macon, where if you went in and talked about um, zoning or other limitations for affordable housing, frankly, you'd be laughed out of the room because that's just not the issue in Macon. What's the issue? And the issues in Macon is disinvestment, um, decades of vacancy, decades of blighted houses, population decline and stagnation. Um, and that is on the upswing, frankly. Our downtown is coming around. There is revitalization happening. And it's an incredible place to live. But the trick for us as a community is how do we plan that far out to not get in a state situation where 40 years from now we're looking back and said, well, we should have done X, Y, and Z. So, Jim, I, you know, Macon is hardly rural Georgia. We know that, but it's surrounded by a b big swath of rural Georgia. At some of what uh, Ethiel's talking about, you know, you've got people moving out of the community. You have to, you've got a population base that's, that's evaporating to some extent. So, it's not the same as a small rural town, but they're dealing with some of the same kinds of issues. No, but but what's what's interesting is is, you know, if you think about it, except for Savannah, yeah. except for Savannah, uh, we have had a very migratory population yeah. in Georgia over 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 centuries. I mean, there are if you if you ride from if 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 you drive from Bainbridge in southwest Georgia to to St. Mary's. Uh, a straight line on the roads there, you're going to find all these dead communities that were there in the 1890s and the, and, and the, and the, and the 1900s, but are there no longer. I was driving through, uh, after our trip, uh, after our show in Augusta, I had to, I had to make a trip to Athens. I, I, I was driving through, San, uh, through Sandersville, and there were all these elaborate houses that were just in, in in the downtown area that were just just vacant, fallen into yeah, disuse. Beautiful old houses, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you you've got this you, you've got this tremendous uh, dynamic of of people moving here, uh, here and there, and 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 I'm wondering how 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 people in Savannah view view this because you're always there. You have always been there. We have, but it's interesting to hear, I, I kind of find Savannah between Atlanta and Macon in some of this conversation, yeah. because the um, strategy just mentioned for Macon of freezing property taxes for homeowners, Savannah did that when we saw the gentrification, if you will, of downtown Savannah about 20 years ago, when downtown was finally coming back, property values were tripling in a year, and so Stevens Day legislation was passed, which helped homeowners, which is great. So it freezes the value of their home, except for inflation index. But that doesn't address the renters. And so I think there's a whole other conversation that needs to happen um, when we talk about the rental market, because they are very different. I do want to get back real quickly about the role of government, if I can. Sure. Um, absolutely agree. It has to be a collaboration. No one entity can solve this complex issue. And as an urban planner, I'm not hyper-focused on gentrification and affordable housing, but I have the opportunity to take a kind of broader look 
when we talk about the tax revenue for Savannah, the housing department has developed the numbers that show we have about 2,600 lots within a three-mile radius of downtown that are valued at $20,000 or less. So when we look at the economic loss for taxes, they estimate about 1,000 lots cost the city about $1.3 million annually. Not a small amount. So we have the opportunity to help to absorb some of that. But I think from an urban planning perspective, what is it that's driving people to these neighborhoods? If you look at the Beltline, there obviously is a demand for that type of a lifestyle and those non-motorized transportation options that the Beltline is offering. So how can we, instead of saying, how do we fix this one problem in this uh, hyper-focused geographical area, maybe what we need to be looking at is how do we expand those non-motorized transportation options to more areas and spread the wealth and the lifestyle that obviously there's a high demand yeah. to have. But you know, it's interesting about that. When you talk about the non-motorized <laughs> lifestyle, I love that. Shanae, well, you, I was you gonna comment. Go I did, I was gonna comment. Question. It's funny that you say that because that, again, was the intent. <laughs> what has happened is you created a destination. Mm-hmm. And so now people who don't have, to your point, this type of amenity in McDonough and Riverdale and these other places, are doing what? Driving their cars right. to Atlanta to get on the Beltline. And so a traffic situation that was already bad is now horrid on the weekends because this is the place where people want to be. Mm-hmm. And we haven't figured out what do we do about that. Well, the other thing, and if as I've read some of the stories about the thinking early on, the Ryan Gravel days when the mm-hmm. Beltline was just his uh, graduate thesis, uh, his effort to figure out a way to link a whole city around the old railroad lines. Part of this was to give people who work in the city, service people, for instance, police officers, firefighters, whatever, opportunities to get to work uh, more easily, uh, walking to work, riding bikes to work, whatever. I mean, it's a great vision. But that's not quite the way it all developed, is it? <laughs> no, it's not the way that it developed. And, you know, I it's so interesting to me that with that being thought, we never really even, I think, engaged, for instance, those job centers that employ so many people in the housing conversation. Mm-hmm. If we look at um, Georgia State University, think about not just students, but how many people work in Georgia State buildings. Georgia State is, again, a very large landowner in the city of Atlanta, yet the only housing they build is for student housing. And so if there was a time or a conversation with Georgia State about their responsibility to affordable housing as they produce all of the reports on the effects of gentrification in Atlanta, but their contribution to try to combat that, I don't think they've been brought to the table so that we can also say that we've tried on that side as well because we have the resources. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do this. Let me get our first break of the show out of the way. And uh, when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about on this show in which we're examining issues. Really, you know, it's interesting, you feel, you say, I wish we could get rid of the term gentrification. Uh, maybe what, before we take the break, what was the, what's the word you'd put in place? Your, how livable is your community? How vital in terms of diversity is your community? If you were looking for expressions, you know, what would it be? I don't know. That, that's a good question. I did. This is not the replacement, but I did just read this term recently called um, demographic inversion. This idea that Jim was talking about of communities moving around. Right, yeah, right. That doesn't roll off the tongue. But. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Deforestation in the Amazon rainforest has soared since Brazil's far-right president took office in January. Every time you look at a satellite image of the forest, you see another little piece is missing. That's bad news for the planet's climate. The forest stores vast amounts of carbon. A trip into the Amazon this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB, gpbnews.org, and the GPB apps. 
We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, our uh, special panel for today includes Shanae Joseph. She is the executive director of Historic Development Development Corporation and works in the old Fourth Ward, the Martin Luther King District. Uh, her organization is a nonprofit. Denise Grabowski is a principal at Symbiosity, which in Savannah works on uh, the... the um, the vision of Savannah for the future and helping figure out ways to develop that future. Fair yes. enough way to say Fair that? Fair enough, yes, sir. All right. E.C.L. Garlington is uh, with is the executive director of Historic Macon, which is a nonprofit organization in Macon. The mission is to revitalize the community by preserving architecture and sharing history. You know, let me, as long as we're there, you, since 19, since 19, since 2014, You've uh, you've raised something like six million dollars in investments for one specific neighborhood, Beals Hill. Bells Hill, yeah. Bells Hill. What is the why? What is that neighborhood, and why did it attract that money? So, dating back thirty years, historic Macon really kind of honed our neighborhood model, where we focus on one neighborhood at a time, and we bring all of our resources to bear. That staff resources, financial resources, and we partner with. Um, Lots of different groups in the community. Our, probably our longest standing partner is Mercy University. And this idea, again, started 30 years ago in a neighborhood called Hugen and Heights. It's a six-block neighborhood. And that then grew over the years to this larger neighborhood in Bells Hill. It's a 32-block neighborhood. Um, the nice thing about Bells Hill is that it's perfectly nestled between downtown Macon, our hospital, and Mercy University. And so in this neighborhood, you've got the Macon Housing Authority that's been working. They did a Hope 6 development back in 2001, which is this idea of this mixed income and um, not just concentrated poverty. That, frankly, that investment allowed us to do our work. And so that money from the Knight Foundation largely has helped us do our work, but it's also matched by the city, who's done infrastructure improvements in the neighborhood, sidewalks, lighting, and, of course, Mercy University has partnered with us on a down payment assistance program. So, Jim Galloway is also here. I apologize that I uh, – you're such a regular part of the show. <laughs> I'm just a little church mouse here. No, hardly that. Jim, so let, can we – I want to ask you, let, let's take a really big overview for a minute here and talk about what we want our communities to be. And I don't think we're all going to necessarily agree on what we want our communities to be, but – to me, a vibrant city in Macon, Savannah, and Atlanta all have aspirations for being vibrant cities, Jim, is a city of diversity. It's, it's, a, it's a city where you do have people of various income levels, uh, from the wealthiest to people who are on the poorer end of the scale, who work in different professions. They may be uh, firefighters on one end. They may be CEOs. And people... <laughs> together, various races, ethnicities, a city that somehow embraces all of those people and creates an energy around that. Right. And I, I would I would I would even I would at one at once go larger and smaller with that is is and and I, I come to this conversation as a as a uh, almost a lifelong uh, creature of the suburbs yeah. of Atlanta. I mean, I grew up on the south side. I've been out in Cobb County for some 35 years. I moved way the heck out there because my newspaper at the time required us to live where we worked. Wow. Yeah. So I've got, and I've lived with a 30 mile commute into the, into the state capital, but I can remember going to the, 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 uh, uh, the debate in Roswell, uh, when it was, when it was still something of a rural area and, uh, and, and starting to boom, there was a debate in Roswell about, uh, about teachers and cops and firefighters having to move out yeah. further into the exurbs because they were being priced out. I think that it, it kind of happens everywhere. Uh, one of the things that I'm I'm I'm, I'm really fascinating, uh, Shanae, is is that is that the, the Beltline. You know, it's you, you were talking about the transportation idea behind the Beltline, and it's been it's it, that that idea has kind of been overwhelmed by Atlanta's huge traffic mess. Because that's that's kind of the driving force for gentrification in in the city of Atlanta. You've got people who are just tired of the commute, and so they are moving closer in town. Is is that not correct? That is correct. Um, 
keep, you know, another component of the Beltline was supposed to be the light rail, which we have yet to realize. Um, and I think that in itself probably would have had a little bit of relief for transportation for individuals who were in the city. Um, and so coming up with just better options for people who are already here, not including scooters, which (laughs) are causing some of us extreme injury, but other mechanisms to try to alleviate that traffic for people who are in town, I think in itself is something that would be helpful. Um, But the Beltline, as we talk about intent, I still think that there needs to be some sort of calibration of what is it that we thought we were going to do, where are we now, and then how do we get back there? Well, and and for you specifically, looking at the old Fourth Ward, and the MLK Historic District is another matter in in, in some ways entirely. But um, I recall in its earliest stages when Kathy Woolard was the former president of the city council was brought in to lead the Beltline effort. Uh, She initially, she was a fierce proponent of a mixed use affordable housing. I want to talk about what affordable housing means in a minute here. And I, I think, and you may know this in more detail than I do, but my recollection is that one of the reasons that Kathy Woolard ended up on the outs with the, with the organization is that there was a disagreement about how much affordable housing, what was going to happen. The affordable housing didn't really happen along the Beltline. And you're struggling with that, as you've already said, in the old Fourth Ward in general now. Mm-hmm. Um, a goal was set, I think, at 5,600 units without, um, of course, taking into account that we were coming up on a recession and that we would have all these great little legal battles and all this other stuff that would really prevent us from being able to produce. But I think that with that, Atlanta has never been very, um, I think, forceful in saying who they are. We've sort of kind of assumed different identities. Um, And so when we start talking to having the affordable housing conversation, the thought is that if we have these incentives that truly talk about affordability, developers are not going to want to be here. Mm. Um, and so in order to still play nice and be liked, we did things that were very mild as opposed to a little bit more aggressive to ensure that we hit those benchmarks that we needed. Yeah. And so when we start talking about affordability, it's, it's really relative because my affordability is definitely not the same as Denise's. But if we're able to truly look at that calculator and say that from an equity standpoint, what as actually 30% of Sinead's income she can actually afford, and then let there be housing to fit that, then we've actually moved the needle. Denise? So I think the affordable housing conversation has gone to such a national level that communities that may have once upon a time not really talked about it out in the open are now coming to a point where they have to. Um, The citizens are really asking for that. Why do they have to? I think they have to because to simply try and ignore that this conversation exists only leads to more problems. In Savannah, we have 44% of our households that are cost burdened, so spending 30% or more of their income on housing, which leads to a whole, we also have a staggering poverty level that we have not been able to get down. So you can't have one conversation without having the others. Yeah, but as I read about your master plan... Mm -hmm. What I'm reading is it's producing that very problem. It's pushing poorer residents out of their neighborhoods and moving them further away from the city. They're moving to more disparate sections of the city or or distant sections of of the the city. One of the strongest recommendations in the plan um, is actually from the zoning perspective. And that's something that we haven't talked about but is so critically important because the zoning in Savannah up until very recently has made our historic development patterns illegal, where you couldn't, the vibrant neighborhoods of Savannah couldn't be built today because the zoning wouldn't allow it. So for 10 years, we've been working on a new zoning ordinance, affectionately called NUZO, that finally was (laughs) creative, um, has passed city council within the past month. So that's a huge victory. And what it does is that it really diversifies the options available for housing, where it's not one, it's not only single family or an apartment complex, but it addresses that missing middle middle. And miss, sorry, missing middle housing. So duplexes, quadplexes, small-scale multifamily, carriage houses are a huge one because a carriage house allows somebody to make an investment in a home, 
have property that they can rent out, a small unit that's perfect for these lower income individuals that need a place to live in the city. So the zoning component of it is so important. Not only we talk about zoning a lot from inclusionary zoning, but when we're talking about affordable housing, it's so important to talk about the zoning context of what is and isn't allowed and making sure that we can allow these authentic, um, diverse income, diverse housing But until you get there... It, it is forcing people out of the the redeveloped communities that happened all over the old, old Fourth Ward, right? I mean, so you do still have to make that happen, make it a reality, right, mm-hmm. Jim? Well, I, I was I was really I'm, I'm really curious in hearing hearing from all three of our guests on 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 the 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 difference in approach when it comes to home ownership and and rental and rental. I mean, you know, my situation. I've got I've got two daughters, one in D.C., one in in Cobb, who are probably paying three times as much as I ever did on a mortgage uh, just for rent. Uh, and it, you know, it's uh, it, their 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 burden is trying to save that down payment. How mm-hmm. do you balance? How does that? How does how does the the, the rental slash ownership uh, formula fit in? So generally, our model has been focused on single family homeowner occupied houses, and the way that we can do that affordably is that our houses, um, the historic rehabs, are coming with historic tax credits. They're coming with property tax freezes because they're historic houses. And so people are buying essentially brand new historic houses in our neighborhood for close to $400 to $700 a month, which is much cheaper than an apartment in the neighborhood. And and so we're really pushing that home ownership Because you're subsidizing. Exactly. And then you add in the down payment assistance program on top of that if you're a Mercer employee or if you're... um, a Bibb County School District employee, you can get up to $20,000 to buy one of these houses. So what's that doing to the kind of people who are buying house, those, those historic houses with the subsidies that you get from the, from the funding that you raise, the money that you raise from various uh, foundations? Right. So from the very beginning, when we look at a neighborhood, we look at the vacancy and the blight. And so if it's a thriving neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of blight, then we, we're not needed there. So in Bells Hill... I think the vacancy rate was close to 75, 80% of the housing stock that was there was vacant. So we target those vacant houses. And so generally speaking, the buyers of these houses are new to Macon. They're relocating from another part of the country to work at Mercer. They generally have young families because there's a fantastic public elementary school in the neighborhood. The quality of life is such that they can walk and bike to um, parks and other amenities. We actually give our buyers two bikes um, to actually incentivize. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's great. So the idea is that we want more bicyclists on the road. And so it is, you know, we are, the demographics are changing in the neighborhood, but our intent is to keep it a diverse neighborhood because that's what people love about it. Galloway, can you imagine if you've been living, uh, you know, you're recruited at Mercer, they offer you a good job, and you're coming down from the Northeast, and you see that you can buy a historic home for like 600 bucks a month. <laughs> and they will give you a bicycle. <laughs> and two, two bicycles. bicycles. Two bicycles. <laughs> Should they, what, talk to us a little bit about the difference between what you've been able to do what happened really to the old fourth ward where everything's turned around so rapidly and then right next door the mlk historic district where you still have a lot of work to do you still have i mean you've still got the mlk uh, birth home you've got all those wonderful national historic homes but you've also got housing stock that's run down that needs to be uh, somehow improved and needs to how, how do you deal with that community or have I got that wrong at well, this point Well I would say to be honest with you we actually have the lowest amount of dilapidated houses in the city of Atlanta, specifically in Fourth Ward. Now, the Sweet Auburn Corridor um, is one that is very much in need of reinvestment. Somehow or another, once you get out of the MLK Park, um, it's almost as if that little pocket was forgotten. That's what I meant, yeah. Um, But most of the real estate there is really commercial properties, and the residential property most of it is multifamily that's owned by churches, and they're actually going through some revitalization right now. So a lot of the single-family homes, for the most part, um, are actually been rehabbed and are adding to our, our great um, issue. And you really can't find anything there for more less than about five hundred, four or five hundred thousand dollars. But what we're dealing with is still having to combat that disinvestment on the the commercial side, because just like you're saying that everybody wants to um, live in Fourth Ward, people want to work in Fourth Ward too. Yeah. But if I can't afford 
afford the storefront or I definitely can't buy my business and I, I can't be here. Or even if I maybe be able to rent an apartment, I can't work here as well. And so we start talking about quality of life. And when HGDC um, started our work, that's really what we were focusing on was equitable development. How do we level those playing fields for everyone? When our organization um, got hit really, really hard by the recession, as many nonprofits did, and, you know, wasn't really at the table, that's when a lot of our gentrification really started to pick up. So now that we're back at the table, we're really focusing specifically on the Auburn corridor. And the reason for that is if you look at the landowners in that corridor, it's majority nonprofits, religious institutions, organizations that have held onto their property for a very, very long time. We are not in an opportunity zone, and to some individuals that might be a bad thing. We don't necessarily see it as a bad thing because it allows us to not only keep control, but to be very strategic in planning on how do we ensure that we don't get back to where we were and create yet another, um, I guess, issue that we had with Fourth Ward in outpricing everyone who's currently there. Yeah, I can remember. I can remember doing stories, Bill, in the 1980s on on yet another effort to, to kind of bring Sweet Auburn back. And yeah. it, it always, it, it, it's, there's always been this tension of, uh, it's 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 pure gentrification. How much do we improve, and do we improve it? But but do we improve it so much that I can't stay? That's that's exactly that's. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's kind of what I was talking about when I talked about a city that's vibrancy is based on its diversity, on on its history still being in, intact and being able to see it on people who are different from I am. When I drive down Auburn Avenue or Edgewood, which is moved. For those of you who are in Atlanta, picture Edgewood moving west out of the city. Edgewood is commercially, it's come around in a great, a great way, I guess. Auburn still reminds me of what Atlanta was when MLK himself walked the streets here. Now, I get that you're not getting the maximum tax value out of some of those commercial buildings down there. But there's, and I know that it can be improved. So I'm not making the argument that you should leave things as they are. But it, there is something about that mix and our ties with the past that appeals to me in a way. Yeah, does that make any sense, Shanae? Absolutely, because it is the cultural significance. Yeah. You know, it is making sure that no matter who comes to Atlanta, they understand what it took and who it took to make this city what it was. Yeah, I don't want Auburn to suddenly be, a, you know, $700,000 condominium high rises. And, and that's the great thing about having an historic district. And when we start talking about the zoning and those ordinances, having things in place, we have developers now that want to go up eight, nine, ten stories. And because we have, you know, restrictions that don't allow that, we can say that you're not allowed to do that here. And then coming back to what you do put here, tying it back to the history. So you still feel that presence, that vibrancy of what Atlanta was back in that time when African-Americans were thriving so much on Auburn Avenue. Do you deal well, with that kind of... Go ahead. Well, Denise. I was going to say, I think one. I think that really drives home the point that it's, it's really easy to talk about this, you know, big, huge word of gentrification, but it, it's a neighborhood by neighborhood approach. Yeah. You got to know the neighborhood that you're working in. And some neighborhoods have the ability to change in new and exciting ways more so than others, depending on their culture, depending on their history, depending on their urban form. So some neighborhoods have the ability to absorb more density um, better than others and what that density looks like and how it fits into the fabric of the neighborhood. And that has to be a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood conversation. So it's not a one-size-fits-all, I don't think. All right, i got to get to our final break of the show. Uh, when I uh, come back... We have a lot more to talk about with our guests talking about that dreaded word, gentrification. This is Political Rewind. Hi, I'm Ross Sorrell, GPB's reporter here in Atlanta, but I cover more than the state's largest city. I tell stories about the problems farmers in the southern part of Georgia are facing, and I report on transportation issues affecting the 13 metro Atlanta counties. We believe express lanes is our way to manage the amount of traffic or demand to give those users the reliable trip times that they're looking for. Stick with us to hear these stories and more. GPB News, stand with the facts. Underwater explorer and photographer Jill Heinerth has dived into unmapped caves deep in the earth and beneath a giant iceberg. She's seen hidden creatures old as dinosaurs and witnessed scenes of surreal beauty. 
Her work is so dangerous, 100 of her friends and colleagues have died in dives. She has a new book, and we talk with her on the next Fresh Air. Join us. Fresh Air is 3 o'clock this afternoon on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. My uh, Monday and Friday partner on the show, Jim Galloway, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, is sitting in uh, the seat uh, to my left. Hi, Jim, going to keep talking about gentrification for the next few minutes. Right. It is. It's. 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 It's something to. I'm watching from afar. Yeah, far, from far way away. up there in Copca. I tried to. Go, I went to Galloway. I've mentioned this on the air. I went to see Galloway at his house when he had a t- really bad injury a while back, and uh, it took me like an hour to figure out where the heck I was going. <laughs> he almost died of hunger and yeah. thirst. <laughs> uh, Ephiel Garlington is here from uh, Macon. Denise Grabowski from Savannah. Shanae Joseph uh, from right here in Atlanta. The state is represented. All right. You are looking in Savannah at this master plan for the future of Savannah uh, at a Beltline-like configuration to help uh, connect the city in a better way. Yes. So we are very excited about Tide to Town, which is a 30-mile multimodal corridor, non-motorized transportation, so bikes, we Right now, scooters are not allowed in Savannah, so we've kind of nixed that for now until we get a policy in place. But we've got this 30-mile core loop that connects from downtown all the way out to what we call the south side, which is basically the suburban area of Savannah, and then eventually having connections to the east and to the west. And one of the things we're super excited about is working with the Coastal Georgia YMCA and Healthy Savannah Coalition. We have a grant from the CDC, Center for Disease Control, that is looking specifically at those neighborhoods along Tide to Town that have historically been disenfranchised. So it's called REACH, which is Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health. So those neighborhoods are the ones that typically have the highest health disparities, and Tied to Town is a way to increase physical activity, and we are taking a very specific and targeted look at how can we avoid gentrification ahead of time through an equitable development task force to be able to work with the city and other community leaders to put policies and recommendations in place ahead of time to try and avoid some of the challenges that Atlanta has faced with about. Wow, Sinead, that sounds like a real holistic approach. I mean, (laughs) when you start talking not just about tying people together in terms of how they get from one place to another, but if you've got CDC coming in and saying, we want to use your infrastructure to to do outreach for for public health concerns. That's a really interesting approach. Um, I think it's an interesting approach. I think that, you know, it's great that other places have been able to look at Atlanta for the good and not so great things that have occurred and hopefully learned. Um, And I'm hoping that Atlanta will learn from itself because we still have pockets that are in need of revitalization. And if we're looking at what has happened in Fourth Ward, then we should definitely be making better decisions about what happens in southwest Atlanta and Campbellton Road and even Clayton County. How do we revitalize in an equitable way so that we don't create the gentrification? Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, What do you think about this notion of this kind of, you know, approach that takes into consideration more factors than just where people live and what they can afford. I mean, I, I think it makes all the sense in the world. I think the issue is is that we have plans, we have good intentions, but it, a lot of times it's the developers and it's the private sector that gets ahead of everything that once a Beltline is created, they will be buying up that land mm-hmm. and it will be too late. What? And so I think going back to sort of the beginning of this, capitalism is underlying everything that we're doing. And so to fight against that, there are only so much that we can do as communities, and you know, obviously we need to be doing more of it, but I don't think any of us have the answers to that. That's a really important point, and you've all made it to in one way or another. And Jim, it's an issue uh, where here in Atlanta, you have a, a mayor, a city council that has made various efforts to try to impose uh, the kind of controls that Shanae was talking about 
to say to a developer, you must, uh, when you when we give you the, the right to build on this property, we, we zone you properly, whatever, uh, you must build X number of affordable units within there. But the problem is the muscle to do that is just lacking in many communities, including Atlanta. The muscle and, 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 and also, frankly, the, the, the tradition. I mean, if you look at if you look at our, our our adventures with stadiums, for instance, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, the story behind how the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was placed where it was placed, where where the Georgia Dome slash uh, Mercedes Benz Stadium was placed, and how it was placed, those were those were those that was that was muscle, that was economic muscle, uh, and and we're still kind of feeling the reverberations of that. Do you all struggle with that? You don't so much, uh, in uh, in Macon, because you're again just trying to help people buy the houses they want. But you both must struggle with that in Atlanta and Savannah. You've basically said that already, Sinead. We do. Um, I think that in trying to invoke positive peer pressure, that's really what <laughs> needs to happen um, specifically in Atlanta. I think we're great. We're finally getting to the point where we're coming up with plans, and it's mm. great because if you think about it, we hadn't had a plan in a while. Um, but then the thought, how do we actually implement that plan, um, getting down to the specifics and being very intentional with yeah. the details on how that happens. And I think we're still not embracing how strong we really are so that as we create these um, different strategies, that we are a little bit more um, forceful with what we say we're going to do than we've been in the okay. past. Yeah. But then also looking at truly low-hanging fruit and those things that truly can be done on a local level and getting them done. And so we're still still in this planning phase where there's actually an implementation that could occur. And I think we're still a little nervous about taking that step out and doing those things. Well, and I think that's where the, the government and partners, land bank authorities, so forth, have the ability to, to help bridge that gap and encourage small scale development. We tend to look at really big solutions and we're, you know, inclusionary zoning is usually looking at large scale. But we're talking about historic areas that have beautiful historic fabric. So how can we build wealth within those communities for the people who live there and encourage them to be a part of that solution and be a part of the recipient of that wealth in very small-scale incremental developments as one of the tools that we have in the toolbox and not only the large-scale developments? Yeah, and I think that's what we've been doing in Macon and mm -hmm. doing it so well is that we are working in neighborhoods you know, with the residents, with the stakeholders, with the, um, you know, with the entire community, and we're building the neighborhood literally house by house, street by street, block by block. It is not an overnight success. It's not a quick fix. It is a, we will have been in Bells Hill for probably 15 years by mm -hmm. the time we're done. And that's a commitment. That's an investment. And by that point, we know the neighborhood so well. We know those residents so well. And so we, frankly, are invested in that neighborhood and Future neighborhoods essentially invite us to come to their neighborhood because they want that kind of investment in their community. All right. You got the last word in today's show, Ethiel. That's uh, all the time we have for uh, Political Rewind today. I really appreciate all of you coming in and talking to us uh, to help us understand what you're doing in your communities to make them better, to make them uh, more vibrant in many ways. Jim Galloway, uh, thank you. I know you'll be back with me on Friday for another Political Rewind. Absolutely. In the meantime, we'll be here on Tuesday and Wednesday. And before we get to that Friday show, so come on back. Tomorrow at 2, we'll do a political show tomorrow. I just look at all the issues that are popping up in the news with our panel. I'm Bill Nigat. Join me at 2 tomorrow for another Political Rewind. Ivan Lichtenstein, thank you for everything that you have done. And welcome, Sarah Callis, our new intern on Political Rewind. See you all tomorrow at 2. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.